After 10 years of serving as Vice Provost and Chief Diversity Officer here at USF, Mary Wardell Ghiraduzzi has accepted the inaugural position of Vice President for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at University of the Pacific. With this episode, we'd like to especially honor Mary's work at USF. We will miss her, and we wish her the best. I'm Marilyn Delore, co-director of the Tracy Seeley Center for Teaching Excellence. And I'm Eugene Kim, the other co-director. Who are we talking to today, Eugene? Well, today we're going to listen to a conversation that I had with Dr. Mary J. Wardell Ghiraduzzi, who is the Vice Provost for Diversity Engagement and Community Outreach here at USF and also a very lovely person. So I really enjoyed having this long conversation with her and I want to share it with, uh, with you all. Great. Our guest today on CTE Podcast is Dr. Mary Wardell Ghiraduzzi. Mary, thank you so much for being here. And could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, thank you so much, Eugene. Well, um, I came to USF in 2008, and um, it was after being in Southern California for a stretch of about 18 years. And I was the first in my family to go to college and I had never left my local city. Um, I had went to a community college, and then I had transferred to the University of, of the Pacific, being the, not only the first in my immediate family, but my extended family to be able to attend a university. And I tell you that a little bit of, of my background, because my parents were part of the Great Migration. They came to California. They arrived maybe 53, uh, 54 but they grew up in a time where the public policy of the, of the land was separate and unequal. They were really, in many ways, refugees in their own land. They grew up in communities that were segregated and, and schools that were segregated. That upbringing in which they came to California, decided to move to the most multiracial community that they could find. And so I grew up around other immigrants, literally from Chinese-American, Filipino-American, Mexican-American, Central American. That really kind of gave me a different sense of the possibilities of what a society could be. So I was raised by a couple that was very race conscious, not because they wanted to be, because society made that so as the descendants of enslaved people on both sides of my family. So they, that was the existence that they knew, a completely segregated unequal society. And then moving me and my sisters, or having me and my sisters, because we weren't born yet, in this really multiracial community, in fairly immigrant-based um, community, it gave me a, a notion of how uh, change and unity might happen. And so that really, Eugene, really informs it, actually all the work that I do, not only at the University of San Francisco, but it kind of informs my my worldview around diversity, equity, inclusion work, um, even before I became the University of San Francisco's chief diversity officer, I was doing work in this space. And so I can't separate my family's experience, my parents' experience, which is different than my own, from the work that I do. That's a little bit about my background. Yeah, that's that's great. And I think the last thing that you said about how your uh, career and scholarship 
and leadership trajectory really began before you were doing things like trying to identify what your agenda was going mm -hmm. to be or what your development <laughs> track was going to be, right? We are formed um, based on mm -hmm. the experiences that we've had in this multicultural community and, you know, as the result of our upbringing and the experiences mm -hmm. that those who helped form us were having as mm -hmm. well. I think that's really key. Um, so. I want to ask about this moment that we're in, you know, with the, the global pandemic and the racial uprisings and the political turmoil. How is that affecting the work that you do in race consciousness and capacity building, um, capacity building in the race consciousness and you know, equity context? Is it more challenging? Does it present opportunities for you? What do you think? Well, after the death of George Floyd, there has been a national sobering, if you will. And what I see with that kind of sobering uh, sense of fear, concern, guilt, shame, also comes a sense of responsibility that I've never seen happen in the course of the years that I've been working, Eugene. Meaning that there's been more people that have been open to the notion of personal responsibility um, around issues of race and racism, around inequity generally, around just trying to understand what is the ways in which institutionalized racism, what does it even mean and how it works. That openness um, has come from a, uh, uh, a sense of being sobered. And I don't think that soberness would have happened if we had not been also in the shelter in place, and we were dealing with a novel coronavirus uh, at the time of Mr. Floyd's murder. It was just the perfect storm in which the soberness created an outpouring that led to an openness. And so we're in a time of great opportunity. I mean, significant opportunity, because what I have seen and what many other people have seen that do this work is that people are asking questions that they've never been open to asking. You know, employers are responding to their stakeholders in ways that they've never responded before because these corporate leaders feel really responsible and um, they're responding to uh, their black employees or uh, Latinx employees or all the various infinity groups. It's almost like, I don't know, uh, if you ever watched Charleston Heston's and, you know, the Ten Commandments or mm -hmm. Prince of Egypt, whichever version, you know, when the Red Sea parted, it would say that, you know, these waves were, were standing up on both sides, if you read the passage in the Old Testament, and that the ground was dry, um, and, and that allowed them to be able to make it through to the other side before the river then closed. And as the story goes, the biblical story goes, not one of those Hebrew children were lost. I don't know if, if what's going to happen, you know, going forward for the communities that have been hurt the most, particularly Black-identified people, children, Black trans people, Latinx communities, as well as Indigenous communities and the way that they've been impacted specifically on COVID and some other things. They've had terrible outcomes along with the Latinx and African-American communities. But all I know for sure is that we're in a time where institutional actors, and institutional actors, anybody that has uh, a role of power and influence. But we're in a time where institutional actors are being held accountable by 
a changing landscape of stakeholders. So they've always had their stakeholders, but they have new stakeholders that have emerged. And those new stakeholders are making demands. Those new stakeholders are asking different kinds of questions. Those new stakeholders are um, seeking more uh, accountability and transparency. I don't think that that's going to go away anytime soon, Eugene. The ground may not be completely dry, but I don't think that it's going to be as murky as it has been before where there were whole communities that were sinking because of the rampant racism that impacted their ability to have whole and just and um, lives where they can actually be their whole selves. I just don't think we're going to go back to that. So what do we want to talk about here? <laughs> well, um, so the main thought that I had was I, I, I'm, I, I understand Mary's point. I guess I don't share her optimism. And, and here's sort of why. I feel like Me Too is a recent enough example that kind of illustrates my point. Like there was a time when it was like, oh, it's on. Like we're putting our foot down. This has happened. And that pressure that the other uh, stakeholders are feeling and then therefore exerting is only lasts as long as the public sentiment just sort of like puts it top of mind. Now, I agree with Mary on the point that the communities that have suffered from racial injustice and social inequities, they're going to continue to still feel those pains. Like that reality doesn't change. But the era of you know, the chirons on the news sort of capturing those things and having it be top of mind, like in the same way that something can flare up, those things can immediately go out too. And when, when it's out of like immediate consciousness, like I, I guess I just don't share her optimism that that kind of thing is going to continue on. Perhaps a more positive spin would be to say it's our responsibility while the iron is hot to sort of like strike in meaningful ways that will then last beyond this. But I mean, that's always true. So... Yeah, well, I think that, you know, lots of people would argue that Black Lives Matter and, and the racial justice uprisings that we saw so intensively in 2020 are sort of the next chapter of the civil rights movement, right? And so, yes, on the one hand, I agree with your guarded optimism or, or even pessimism, I guess, that there are these intense flashes of the public conversation and that that will die down, right? There'll be new questions or we're worried about the environment and global warming for a moment and then not, right? Yeah. There are always sort of new concerns. And my sense of looking at the history of social movements, you know, there's a bit of this two steps forward, one step back. It's sort of an ongoing iterative process. And, you know, there can be through collective concerted effort across multiple platforms and through many different tactics, right? shifts that may not immediately register a victory or a legislative change, but that may change ways of thinking and talking. And what I heard Mary saying and what I observed, I think last year, was that suddenly more people were asking more questions. And as she said, right, these new stakeholders having voice to a larger public on a broader table that's promising. And I think what you said just a moment ago about it behooves us as sort of members of an, of an institution, 
right? She talked about the uh, accountability and responsibility of people who have into institutional power. How can we as faculty help center those questions and concerns and take all that has happened in the last year and use it as a lens to reflect more deeply on our own teaching practices? Yeah. Now, you, you, you make a really good point about optimism not necessarily meaning that like all problems are solved or that this is now something that is a chapter that we can put behind us, but rather optimism that some threshold has been crossed. And crossing that threshold is a step in the direction. It doesn't solve all the problems or mean that the, the problem is gone. It just means that we have made some advance on that journey even if sometimes that journey is a bit meandering and as you said you know two steps forward one step back so i think that that's that's true that that's appropriate perspective to have and and yeah you're bound to be disappointed if you just think of it as like well this happened i think that's just going to sort of fix our problem because that's not the way social movements happen i guess yeah and in fact on that note i was looking around because i wanted to find um, the very first text that I assigned to my students for the spring um, was an essay by the Bay Area writer Rebecca Solnit that was published in March of 2017, so shortly after Trump's inauguration. And she talks a lot about hope and social change and builds this really lovely argument about how you can't know what action you take now as an individual or as a group what ultimate impact it will have, right? So she talks about the Women's March on Washington the day after Trump was inaugurated, um, saying, who knows, maybe there was a four or five-year-old girl sitting on her parents' shoulder who one day will run for national office, right? So you can't know even if a particular um, protest or action fails in its immediate objective, it may live beyond that. I want to read a quote from yeah, here. Please. Um, so Rebecca Solnit writes, what you've done may do more than you can imagine for generations to come. You plant a seed and a tree grows from it. Will there be fruit, shade, habitat for birds, more seeds, a forest, wood to build a cradle or a house? You don't know. A tree can live much longer than you. So will an idea, and sometimes the changes that result from accepting that new idea about what is true, right, just. Remake the world. So it's that idea of you do something and who knows how someone else, even somewhere in a different country, will pick up that idea or that tactic and weave it into a new movement. Yeah, and there's, there's uh, much reason for optimism when you couldn't possibly anticipate all of the sort of like butterfly effect things that could come from it. Yeah. Let's return to my conversation with Mary. All right. So I wanted to ask you about now your expertise um, as a leader and as a scholar practitioner in, mm -hmm. in an area that you educated me on just by telling me what it was. So you identify as an expert in equity and race conscious capacity building. Now I this do. is, yeah, this is something that I think your average run of the mill person, even an academic <laughs> is going to be like, okay, I'll nod because I should, I know what all of those words are separately, <laughs> but when you put them together, I'm not exactly sure. So, so what does capacity building mean 
in the context of equity and race consciousness? Well, you know, um, when we talk about capacity building, it's the ways in which we begin to become more conscious and oftentimes more critically conscious to knowledge and awareness and skills. So those three things, knowledge, awareness, and skills, that can help us to respond to a situation better, to help us to teach better in the, in the context of higher education, to help us to um, manage our classrooms better, perhaps, for the purposes of just being more equitable, for the purposes of being more inclusive, for the purposes of just, you know, creating more whole and kind of just learning and, in some cases, living environments. You know, and the, when you think around issues of equity, and right now people are trying to understand what is it that we have been taught and what is the, the framework that we have around the stories that we have been taught about certain communities, uh, certain marginalized groups of individuals. And I think that in society in general, we're not taught how to think about nor are we equipped to talk about race. We know what race is cognitively. I think most smart people will know that race is a social construct, you know, it symbolizes social conflict and refers to different types of human beings. We kind of have been taught, all of us that were educated under McGraw-Hill and all those mm -hmm. book publishers that um, wrote social science histories, uh, we have these ideas of what racism is, that right. um, usually is individual-based, acts of an individual against another individual. We were always taught that racism was on a good-bad binary. So racism is the result of racist people who are acting badly. <laughs> you know, smart people bring that with them uh, when they go into jobs, whether they're on the administrative side or the teaching side. And it ends there, depending upon your own experience. Um, that's what people's knowledge is around race. Right. So there's a, there's a, a great opportunity, um, I see, just to help people understand that we all have racialized identities individually as well as collectively, and we all have an opportunity to understand our own racialized identities, including white people's white racialized identities, and we all have an opportunity to understand what race is and then to understand then how does racism work in society and then be able to take those two and if you, you know, cross it with this idea of equity, which is when one foregrounds, say, race, uh, equity is a race-conscious way to think about mm -hmm anything that you want to do. So if it's a faculty member, a race-conscious uh, pedagogy would be thinking about how do I foreground race in this teaching uh, exercise, in this curricular project or initiative? How do I integrate it fundamentally in the class discussion and not mm -hmm. say that, well, all things be included, if, if race comes up, then we'll deal with it. You know, equity would say, if it was around gender, mm -hmm. equity would say, no, we're going to foreground mm -hmm. issues of gender in whatever it is that we're seeking to do. We're going to foreground whatever it is that we want to focus on. That work sounds so easy, but it's actually pretty complex because 
of our own implications in regard to how we understand racism. And oftentimes we still kind of have that, I call it the fifth graders notion of racism as a binary. So you have really smart people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and whatever age um, have a tough time sometimes navigating and negotiating race-conscious pedagogy or race-conscious, you know, decision-making in in their leadership because I I find as a diversity leader and as an equity specialist and working with them, I can tell they're still operating out of that fifth grader's binary notion of racism is, you know, a good, bad thing. It's good, bad people. And it's hard for them to be able to really deeply understand the ways in which we're all operating under um, deeply intentional and conscious ways of creating systemic racism in our teaching, in our scholarship, in who, in who gets to teach, who gets to engage in scholarship, to who gets to go to school, to who gets to live in a, in a community. The fact of the matter is that most of us are fairly woefully undereducated in the areas of race and racism. And so we're not fundamentally race conscious unless we have had a lived experience because of our own identity or because of some other experience we got through someone else because of our close relationship to their lived experience or we happen to be a scholar of it. If you don't kind of fall into those three categories, having a personal lived experience, Mm -hmm. having a close, nearly intimate relationship to people who have had that lived experience or having engaged in a more academic engagement, it's actually quite plausible that the majority of people, not only uh, in society, but also who work at universities, are fairly uh, illiterate in certain areas of, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion. So if you don't fit into those three categories, you know, there's actually a lot to learn. There's a lot of awareness to be had. There's a lot of, you know, education to be had. Um, There's a lot of skills to build. So that's where my work resides as a scholar practitioner. And there's a lot of it to do. (laughs) Eugene, you're grimacing a little bit. Yeah. It's the, the, the way that she ends that piece, like, for a PhD to sort of be told you're sort of illiterate in this way, you know, or a JD or whatever, like in the same way, we're kind of like, well, what, 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 what do you mean? How am I, how am I illiterate? It's also somewhat, um, I think some of us might be more sensitive also to being told that we need to be taught certain things or trained or brought up on certain things. And if that is in fact our bias or our tendency, then that's going to make the work, whatever you're trying to teach, that much harder. And you're a person of color who does fall into one of these categories. You, you, you're a scholar of it. You've lived it or you know somebody very you know, closely who has been this. Now, in addition to that, you're being required to sort of educate those who aren't in those categories when they already have this bias where they're sort of going to be bristling against it. I mean, these are the things that folks have have talked about when they say, like, you know, the burden for some of these things, even if they are valuable, is disproportionately borne by those who are, it's like least fair for them to be bearing that burden. 
But then again, who else is supposed to do that, though? You know, I, I don't know. Well, I mean, I, I think Mary, who says this is her life's work, right? I mean, it's it's sort of the focus of her own graduate education. And then she she is the head of DECO and sort of the leader on campus that is the overseer of these programs. But I, I don't I didn't hear her saying that it's, you know, her personal responsibility to sort of fix everybody and get everybody literate in these things. I mean, I think she creates context and offers programming and helps provide thought leadership on these questions for for the campus as best she can. And there are plenty of other folks on campus who have been doing this work in student life as teachers in classrooms, in CTE even in the past, right? So so I don't think it's a new project. It's an ongoing project, just like we were talking about earlier with the ebb and flow of social movements. But I think that given everything that happened last year and this moment now that Mary talked about earlier, it is an opportunity to strike while the iron is hot. And again, I think that there's been an opening of sorts um, that has created a context for a lot of people to wrestle perhaps more seriously than they had in the past with their place and their, their role in sort of perpetuating white supremacy and inequities and injustices. Hmm. As you were talking about that, like my, my pessimism from the previous breakout came back, sort of like came back. The, the, the part that's the, the pessimistic part that's coming up is like, yeah, this is the time, right? This is the time. There's an opportunity here. And I'm just as guilty as, as anybody else in this. But like, this is the time to then like check in with, with folks like Deco and be like, yeah, we should do something. But even when this wasn't the time, this is what Deco was doing. Mm-hmm. So it's when these opportunities present themselves that it should be going the other way, that folks who are not already making this their life's work should be like, well, wait a second, and then make it part of your own kind of context. You were saying earlier, Eugene, something about how some of us professor types get older and perhaps more encrusted and set in our ways, or we would, you know, think about the way we learned when we were in college, or maybe the the discipline that we got deeply immersed in during our graduate degrees. And so perhaps, you know, we sort of feel like we've earned this level of expertise or I've been teaching this certain way and it's been going pretty well, things considered. Mm -hmm. But I think you were suggesting that we teachers need to have a growth mindset for ourselves, right? To use that Carol Dweck term I think most people are familiar with, right? Mm -hmm. Um, To challenge ourselves to kind of remember that we can still keep inventing and revising. And I mean, even though it's been tough and a lot of work in many respects, you know, there's also been this exciting, creative space of reinvention. And I think that that's the best way to try to approach this question of taking up some of these, you know, concerns about diversity and equity and capacity building, right? And to think about how, okay, in this historical moment, how can I, as a teacher, how can all of us as a university community take up those questions and use them to reflect on what it is that we do and how, regardless of what stage of the career we're currently at, how we can keep doing that better? That's right. We, we all need to have the humility 
to know that we're not already set and the desire to be like, well, let me see if I can figure out a way that I can help push instead of being like, well, find something that my existing mold already fits perfectly into. Otherwise, I'm not going to be a part of this. Yeah. So, Mary, what kind of advice would you have for faculty like in their little individual classrooms, you know, in their little interactions that are more small group or personal in nature. And I would say, especially for faculty who you know, want to be allies, want to be supportive, want to become educated, but don't really touch on race and equity as a core part of their academic areas of expertise. What advice for them? Well, my advice to anyone who thinks that you know, they, because they don't teach in the humanities or they're not in the school of education or they don't see these issues of equity and inclusion being part of their field, I would just ask them to just to take a step backward and to remember that we're fully formed beings that has been impacted by the society in which we live in. And so if you happen to be in a field and you studied in a field and you lead and you teach and do research in a field where you don't see any implications of race, what that tells me is that there's a great opportunity for one to learn the racialized implications of their own field. And what that means is that, say if it's going with the, the, uh, the example you gave earlier, Eugene, and you talked about, you mentioned chemistry. So we'll go continue with chemistry. What are the ways in which the field of chemistry has been racist? Does racism exist in chemistry? If so, how does it exist? People may say that, you know, the compounds of chemistry does not have a place for any situation that racism is existent, but as a field and how the field um, was born and how it evolved and then the ways that plays itself out in university curriculum and the way that plays itself out in research and in the field, you know, there's just a lot in my mind, and I never majored in chemistry, that one could think about around racism in chemistry. <laughs> So I just think that there's just a lot there. <laughs> you know, part of it is that people don't ask the right questions. You gotta be curious enough. You know, everybody has a racialized experience. There is nothing that is taught at the University of San Francisco or anywhere in higher education that doesn't have racialized implications. And I just think it's just our our duty as curious and conscious folks to ask those questions of ourselves as well as the classrooms and the majors in which we hold and, and stewards of the professions um, that we, we chose. Yeah, that's, that, that's fabulous. The, you know, any human endeavor, um, and, and that's what academic studies are. It is a human endeavor seeking knowledge, seeking understanding. Any human endeavor is necessarily going to come, it seems to me, with all of the virtues mm -hmm. that the human race brings, but mm -hmm. also all of the baggage that we bring with it because, you know, it's, it's an institution that is made by humans. Absolutely. All right. So I think that what she's saying is true, hmm. but you could say that about anything. You know, like if I if I geek out about the law, I can find how principles underlying, you know, law kind of affected everything in, in everything else, too. Um, or me, I'd say everything I mean, is rhetoric. <laughs> yeah, everything with rhetoric. 
Um, but I, I think that's that's more just a testament to how everything is interwoven and interconnected. And so I, I guess that's if you want to say like, hey, my thing is too far afield from X for me to really have to have any responsibility or opportunity to be able to engage in that, then I, I think we can say like, well, no, we're all sort of interconnected. But there's a sense in which if you take that too far, then everybody is responsible for everything. Mm. You're not suggesting that all math majors should be dedicating a larger percentage of their study time in taking rhetoric classes. And so if we were to extend that further, one could say, no, 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 I I totally see how they're all interconnected. But unless you're suggesting that we should just do away with majors and everybody comes to USF and says, like, what are you majoring? And say, life. (laughs) You know, unless we're going to do that, don't we sort of have our lanes for lack of a better word and what's actually the appropriate way of of making sure that we achieve some sort of proficiency in the different aspects of life right yeah well i mean what struck me the most is where she talked about our duty as curious conscientious folks right so for me again i think it's mostly about asking the questions and going back over perhaps the familiar terrain of the disciplines as we learned them and you know looking for blind spots or sort of missing things or questions we didn't even consider some of us when we were in college and grad school and i think definitely what mary is getting at here is that this attention to racialized experiences and implications and questions of diversity and inclusion should not be restricted only to the critical diversity studies major, right? But that all disciplines have human histories that have had exclusions of various kinds. And even if one doesn't, you know, turn the entire focus of a a math class or a physics class into a kind of recuperative history of the discipline, right? I think we, whatever our subject matter is, can at least, you know, attend to those questions and concerns and sort of think about, are there ways? I mean, you know, there are plenty of unsung and not really remembered in history, women and people of color in all disciplines. Right. The other, the other little thing that I don't know if this would be useful or not, but when I was thinking about chemistry, I read an article a couple of weeks ago related to COVID. And so this article talked very specifically about one thing. So, you know, there's this little device called a pulse oximeter that goes on your finger that measures your blood oxygen level. Right. And this article talked about how that technology, right, that scanning to measure your blood chemistry, those devices work pretty well on white people and light-skinned people, but much less well on dark-skinned people, right, because mm-hmm, it had mm-hmm. to do with the optics of it. So I thought, mm-hmm. okay, there's an example, right, of the outcome, which we know in, in all kinds of, you know, medical research, if your subjects are white men looking at heart disease, then of course you don't know much about heart disease in women. Or if you've developed your little, you know, pulse oximeter gadget and did most of your testing, your optical testing on light skinned fingers, then mm-hmm. it may not work well. And so, you know, it was not necessarily one person's 
racist intent to leave certain people out. Right. But they're based on the the histories and the protocols and the norms of, of research is a, a racialized outcome that has real serious and negative impact. That's a great that's a great, great example, um, because I, I would say that whoever was developing the pulse oximeter, let's say, uh, was just following like, well, the norm is light skinned, you know, Caucasian or Asian, uh, you know, light skinned. All right, so if that's that's the norm, so already the the structure is sort of built in to say that what is sort of not the norm is dark skinned. So there's that. But then also, if we say like, okay, well that's a problem, whose responsibility is it to address that problem? If we were to say I developed the pulse oximeter, my job is just the technical side of things, but it's not my responsibility to worry about how there's a disparate impact. Rather, I've now created this pulse oximeter. Groups like deco in the world should be going around and like looking at all these new tools and vaccines and gadgets and whatever and evaluating whether or not there are disparate impacts on marginalized communities that would be ridiculous that would be ridiculous i, I mean right i mean that's ridiculous to me and, and so um then the responsibility should be on who right and some i think would push back and be like well what we're gonna we're gonna saddle medical R and D with the requirement that they have to like think about how this affects marginalized communities. I think if we're honest about it, the answer to that question should be yeah, because otherwise you're offloading this responsibility onto you name it, you know, nonprofits, government entities, watchdog groups. But why? What? Why should that be a separate responsibility? Yeah, 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 I don't know. That, that's, exactly. That's... Well, I, I think that's why um, Mary's broad approach to bringing these questions, I mean, it's almost like sort of putting on a, a lens or shifting your perspective a bit, right, to say, ah, you know, what are the limitations or exclusions or occlusions, right, from my or my discipline's standard traditional approach to things right and in the example of this medical research right to say wait a minute you know why why didn't we think of testing this device and developing the technology by looking at a wide range of skin colors yeah yeah so um you know like the, the same logic i think could apply um i don't know if we're necessarily chastising yourself but just like observing that like yeah, hmm, we're not really going about this exactly the right way. Um, and if we just try to make things work in, in a very general sort of sense, we're inviting trouble. It's by definition not going to work out well for those who do not fit that mold. And, you know. Yeah, well, and I think that, you know, this dovetails really perfectly with a sort of a universal design approach to education, right? So that Mary's, you know, questioning about the history of the discipline of chemistry or whatever the discipline might be. There's like the content, but I think uh, an equally important, if not more so, question, right, or, or issue here is how do we teach, right? And how do we engage our diverse student body teaching whatever it is that we're teaching, right? Um, and that if we you know, think about equity and inclusion and capacity building and universal design, how can we make what we teach not one size fits all, right? But right. Um, adapted 
and accessible to a range of students and their experiences. Yeah, yeah. So, Mary, is, is there something else that you would like to share, to talk about, to raise, um, that I didn't already touch on? Well, you know, I believe that we have to be reminded of what we've accomplished in the past and to use a playbook of organizing ourselves, use a playbook of creating coalitions where you keep the pressure as well as the capacity to not only expect change, but to demand it. And I think that we're going to enter a time where we're going to really be able to do that after or even through, and maybe even because of COVID. You know, nobody knows the future. Nobody expected this 2020 year to exist as it has. But I think we are pretty clear to say that there's going to be an ongoing expectation in society that we not go back to where we were before. And this idea of normal is something that we need to get out of our heads and our hearts. And I know, you know, get me wrong, I love to go out and sit out and sit and have a nice dinner and a glass of wine in a crowded restaurant. So there are some normal things that, uh, that I look forward to. But the fact of the matter is that from a lens of equity, our society has been so inequitable and so unfair for so many people for so long, going back to normal is not something many people wanted to have happen. And so this notion of us privileged people that uh, have this kind of long desire of going back to normal, we're going to have to actually uh, bring other people along and try to understand how their normal never worked out for them. It didn't work out for their children. It didn't work out for their community. And how are we going to create a new normal that brings them and their issues and their dignity and their dreams and their hopes to the center? And so my, my kind of my closing thoughts with you is that the compelling case that I make with my students is that if you become race conscious as a future educational policymaker, as a future educator, some of them might become principals, some of them might end up in higher education, they just do whatever they end up doing, you will move the needle on other marginalized communities based upon the disproportionate impact that communities of color have had, not only in education, but across everywhere else. And so I believe that wholeheartedly, that centering equity and then being race conscious is the way in which we make progress is the way that Black Lives Matter movement as an anti-Black racist movement has made progress by centering Blackness. This idea of putting race, and in the case of Black Lives Matter, centering Blackness is a way in which you ensure that all the marginalized communities, people with disabilities, people that are facing religious persecution because they're religious minoritized in this country, and all the other things, that their issues will be dealt with when you deal with the issues of race and even more specifically when you deal with anti-blackness or or centering blackness. Yeah, I I feel your sense of optimism, but but, but I appreciate that you also have a playbook 
It's it's not just uh, wishful thinking. Yeah. Um, I, I hear you saying, you know, the continued work, uh, organization, coalition building, uh, it kind of reminds me of a saying that somebody, a cyclist once said about like, you know, when you're pedaling and working hard going up hills and then you finally get to the plateau, that's not the time to then stop pedaling. You pedal through those plateaus too. Like, thank mm-hmm. goodness that you're at a place where you no longer mm-hmm. have to put everything into it just to stay on your bike. But this is now where some continued gains can happen if we have sustained and smart effort that continues on. So I I appreciate that. All right. Well, um, I'm grateful for your willingness to continue chatting with me. It's good work that you're doing, and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Eugene, thanks so much for interviewing Mary. That was a really meaningful conversation. Sure. Thanks for that opportunity. I really enjoyed talking with her, and I'm glad to share the conversation with you. Hope to see you all soon again on CTE Podcast. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by the Tracy Seeley Center for Teaching Excellence at the University of San Francisco. The CTE is co-directed by Marilyn Delore and Eugene Kim. Our program assistant is Nisha Jaster. Sound editing was done by CTE student assistant Sophie Fry. Sophie Fry.